servant, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. This is not a good line to quote to your mother when you're a little <laughs> child and she's making the stew you don't like. <laughs> uh, and they could not eat it. Verse 41, he said, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Okay, so he, uh, there's obviously, uh, you know, the implication here is that the gourds are poisonous and everyone is in the midst of being poisoned, who's eaten the, who's eaten the stew, and uh, this flour is thrown in it, and it miraculously makes the pot edible, and uh, yeah, if the, the study note on um, 39, verse 39, says these are fruits of a cucumber-like vine, thought to be colocynth. Although used for medicinal purposes, they can prove fatal if eaten in large quantities. Yeah, so flour, the most common food of the Israelites, that's what he uses. It's interesting, it says, though extra flour would disperse the effects of the poison, the results here were not merely clever but miraculous. All right, a man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. And what does that remind us of? Yeah, feeding of the 5,000. So we have two... We have two accounts here tied together where Elisha does miraculous things with food. Um, these could certainly be woven into the Old Testament typology of the Lord's Supper and um, the way in which, in the one instance, we are, uh, we are poisoned by the, by the fruit of the tree. We eat and receive death. And... Uh, food is healed such that it gives us eternal life once more in the body of Christ as he gives us his body to eat. Um, so there is a, a type, quite subtle admittedly, um, in Elisha purifying the deadly stew. Um, 
that which brought death now brings life, um, eating at the center of that. And then you have uh, this miraculous multiplication of the loaves and the grain, uh, foreshadowing Jesus' own multiplication. All right, any, uh, any thoughts, any questions, anything fascinating that you found in your studies that you want to bring up um, in this section? Okay, on to a very famous story, possibly even the most well-known in 2 Kings, and that is the story of Naaman. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. It's very interesting. Of course, um, there's no certainty whatsoever. In fact, I would suspect there's great doubt that either Naaman or the king of Syria thought that the Lord was the one responsible for their victory. Uh, but since this author, the author of 2 Kings, is the one telling the story, he says very plainly that it was the Lord who gave Naaman victory. So... The Lord is God of the nations, we see. And of course, in the ancient world, in the, in the world of idolatry, each deity is tied to a region or a nation. And so the idea that, um, that Yahweh is the God of the nations uh, tramples, contradicts the idea that the other gods are anything at all. Uh, yes, so the question was, um, does God throughout the Old Testament use one nation to judge the other nations? And yes, that's true. In fact, I would say he uses all the nations to judge e each other, right? That's, in some respects, that's the world history of conflict and wars is um, God using nation to judge another nation. That's, that's one way to consider it. Um, isn't, it isn't there a... a, a isn't there a part in the Old Testament where it talks about God's mercy because he does judge some nations ahead of time? Because like when they were coming in the promised land, yeah. he's saying that sins have come to fulfillment, but he's also looking after their benefit because their judgment, even though they're sinners, would be worse at the end time at the throne of judgment. Yeah, sure, you could make that case. Yeah, you can make that case. I, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that the the majority of the texts of the Old Testament are interested in making that case. They're just more interested in making the case that God is in fact the one true God. And uh, what he wills to be done is done. And so we ought to, uh, all nations ought to turn their attention, turn their hearts toward, towards him and his promise that through this nation, through this family of Israel, he's going to bring a Messiah who will bless all the families of the earth. So it's still a messianic um, call Yeah, maybe that suffices. Syria plays prominently um, because, you know, we are getting, we're a ways off yet. 
but we are getting closer and closer as as Syria uh, grows in strength. I'm trying to see how far along here before Syria shows up, and uh, yeah, there it is. If you flip ahead to 609, um, you'll see, excuse me, that's page 609 in the Lutheran Study Bible. Obviously, what's going on in chapter 17 is the fall of Israel, the northern kingdoms, because of their idolatry. God finally says, that's it. You have the exile, which is, it's an exile from which they don't come back. And then on page 609, you actually have a map of this. Of course, we'll spend more time as we get there. But I, I simply point it out because uh, Naaman is commander of the Syrian army, and it's the Syrians that come down and sweep away, uh, well, the Assyrians, their neighboring. Um, but anyway, it's the Assyrians that come down and sweep, sweep away Israel. So you can see what peril Israel is in even at this stage. So that, um, that has bearing on what we read next. Uh, verse 2, Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. So Israel's borders are not secure. Uh, there's all kinds of internal tumult. External enemies are defeating them, and soon enough, Assyria is going to tip the balance and um, just completely take them over and take them out. All right, so, um, I mean, this is a terrible story, of course. If you, if you think about how terrible and tragic this would be, you know, your daughter is stolen by raiders and taken off to a foreign country. And, uh, you know, made into a servant. So, she works in the service of Naaman's wife. Now, we know that Naaman's a leper, and so verse 3 brings that to bear. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Obviously, she's talking about Elisha. So this is an amazing little girl, and I preached a I preached a sermon on this. Can't remember now. I think it was Lent, <laughs> but uh, but on this text um, from the from the angle and vantage point of the of this little girl, what she is is a type and foreshadowing of of the church surrounded by pagans in need of healing. In fact, Jesus even brings this up that there were many. Many lepers in Israel at the time of Naaman, but Naaman, this Gentile, is healed. Of course, that does not sit well with Jesus' Jewish congregation. Um, but his point is, look, salvation, part, his point is, look, salvation is, is bigger than this one nation. It's for all. And we see that. We glimpse that, that salvation is for all, even for the pagans. And we have this beautiful imagery and type of the church in this uh, and this young girl who is captured, held captive by the pagan nations, much as the church here on earth could be construed to be, and yet she directs her enemy, directs her captor to his salvation. 
uh, to Elisha. And so the church, captured by the pagan nations of this world, so to speak, we point, our we, we point the, the one who has enslaved us, our captor, uh, to where he can find salvation, namely to Christ. So, really, really incredible young girl. Verse 4, So Naaman went and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. You know, it's very interesting, too. There's just so much detail that we want to gloss over, but obviously this, girl's, this girl comports herself in such a way that she's trustworthy. Trustworthy enough that the command... I mean, could you imagine if the commander said, Hey, this girl said I could be healed, and you know, he goes and tells the king, and then he goes off, and then the healing doesn't happen. So, she, so this girl has proven herself to be very trustworthy, that Naaman is willing to stake a lot of em, potential embarrassment on the veracity of what she said. So a beautiful model for us to consider and follow here, too. He simply believes her, and so he goes to the king and says, Hey, thus and so says the girl from Israel. The king says, Go, I'm going to send a letter to the king of Israel. Um, you'll, get the, you'll get the royal treatment, so to speak. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Okay, I probably don't need to translate that for you. It's a lot. A lot of money. A lot of wealth. A talent was about 75 pounds, and a shekel was about two-fifths of an ounce or 11 grams, the ESV study note says. Verse 6, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. <laughs> and when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Okay, how does the king receive it? About like you and I would receive it, you know. But this is a potential rival. And so it's basically like, hey, do this impossible thing for this guy. I mean, the king is like, okay, obviously he's trying to spark a fight here. Um, because if I say I can't or if I try or... Then he'll, he'll pretend to find fault with me and attack and try to be justified. So um, he's messing with me. And it's a dangerous uh, sort of messing that's going on. That's what the king of Israel thinks. Verse 8, But when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, of course that's the sign of distress, mourning usually, but here just distress. He sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Um, I mean, that might just strike us as bravado, but I think it's more to, there's more to it than that. Why does he want to know that there is a prophet in Israel who can perform this? So that he can know that there's a true God in Israel, so that he can go back and report this uh, to the rest of the, the Syrians, not least of which the king and the royal courtiers. So, um, 
Elisha has in mind here not just doing a, doing a miracle so everybody knows that he's boss, but <laughs> I mean, far from that. Elisha has in mind doing this miracle so that the glory of God can be reported back to the Syrians. That's this business about you'll know that a true prophet, that is, one who serves the true God, is in Israel. Okay, verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Now this is, this is kind of remarkable because he doesn't come out and see this great man with his great entourage. He sends a servant and just says, Hey, this is what you need to do. So go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. So here we have a washing in the Jordan. And of course, that takes us in a New Testament sense to John the Baptist, who comes telling people to be washed in the Jordan, not as a removal of leprosy, but as a removal of sin, a washing away of sin. So you can see a typology here between Elisha and John the Baptist and the washing in the Jordan that takes place. Seven times, of course, is a favorite number of God, so... We don't have any more detail there. Yes, please. Uh, do we need to, do, can we have a microphone up here, please? Um, the people that had leprosy, were they allowed to just mingle? I mean, I thought they had to be separated, or was that pretty much just the Israel? Yeah, well, that's a good question. So, as, as I understand it, leprosy is a broad term that can encompass any number of conditions, including kind of the leprosy proper we think of, like leper colony and not coming near and all of this. There are other shades of leprosy, and we just don't know what it is. Um, you know, he seems to be in contact with people, so he's not out in a leper colony. So I, so my read on it, my inference from that is he's not one of these unclean, unclean, stay away. The king wouldn't risk his life to, right? So this is a lesser form of leprosy. Um, still, no doubt, quite troubling or debilitating or whatever the case may be, such that he's willing to go to these lengths. Um, and of course, the Syrians don't have I, I mean, they don't have the identical sense of like clean and unclean and that kind of thing that the, that the Hebrew people have. I mean, nobody likes disease, obviously. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I don't think that this is like, you know, the, the kinds of lepers we see Jesus healing in the New Testament. I don't think this is exactly that. Um, and even in the, where would it be? Probably in Deuteronomy, that'd be my guess, you'll have these different descriptions of the shades of leprosy, skin conditions. Yeah. Okay, so uh, via a messenger, go wash in the Jordan seven times. Could I just ask a question? Oh, yes, please. Okay. Could it be because of his position he had privileges? Like some people in society, our society, mm. don't have to follow the rules. Well, yeah, yeah. So, so what's your, is your point that he would be 
particularly perturbed by this command mm -hmm. that he has to obey, or? Oh, well, I mean, I don't know. That's, it's an interesting theory. I wouldn't rule it out entirely. But if this was truly, again, just, just reading the text at face value, it seems as though he's in the presence of the king. He's not going to have that kind of privilege if he's, you know, super contagious or something like that. One wouldn't think so, right? Okay, verse 11, but Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Uh, I find a type here of people who don't want to be baptized because they think it's below them, <laughs> you know. Why would, I, why would I go splash around in the water? Who needs that kind of thing? I think there's a lot of, uh, well, and there's even a, a sad theology, part of American Christianity that, that basically teaches that, hey, baptism is entirely your activity. It doesn't do anything, so get around to it whenever you feel like it. Good luck finding proof texts in the scriptures for any one of those points. Um, rather, Christ says to be baptized, believe and be baptized, and you shall be saved. And... Uh, all kinds of wonderful promises are connected to baptism, but still people despise it. So this, I've met a few Naamans myself who, who don't want to be baptized because uh, they think it's not going to work below them, etc. All right, then he goes on and says in verse 12, Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Yeah, the study note on verse 12 indicates the murky waters of the Jordan rushing in a low, deeply eroded riverbed to the Salt Sea had little irrigation value. They, I don't know, I guess it was. I've never seen the Jordan. Even today, I'm not sure it would look identical to how it looked, you know, all of these years ago. We're talking about, um, you know, roughly 20, 2,800 years ago-ish. Um, so who knows? But apparently it wasn't a very attractive river. Okay, and then verse 13, But his servants came near and said to him, My father, there's a term of endearment, it is a great word, the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Naaman is surrounded by the best people. Just really fantastic people. People willing to put themselves out on the line. This girl who tells him about Elisha. The servants who are willing to incur his wrath, particularly if it doesn't work and entreat him so gently and respectfully and tell him that indeed it is a great thing that the prophet has spoken. And it is. My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God 
and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. I, I, like, why would you say, like the flesh of a little child? That's so great. That's so great. Because it points back to that little girl, and it points back to the typology of the church, and how she's, you know, the little girl with fair skin and clean skin, I mean, and um, here he's cleansed and becomes like her. Yeah, becomes becomes like a little child. So you've got this baptismal typology uh, in, that, in that sense. Also then in this sense, that in baptism we become, yeah, we become a new child of God. And here he comes out of these waters as a, with the flesh of a little child. Like a new child of God. And he was clean. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. This if I, was, I think if I was looking for a type of baptism for children in the Old Testament, I'd go with St. Paul, yeah, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, where he talks about all the people being baptized um, in, the, in the Red Sea, yeah, with Moses. And so there, I mean, they didn't say, okay, okay. Anyone who has not reached the age of accountability needs to walk around the Red Sea. We'll all see you on the other side as we choose to be baptized by walking through it. No. Everybody went through the Red Sea. Everyone was baptized. And, and nor, does, nor does Paul say, well, well, uh, they all had a baptism. Of course, it's different than our baptism because children aren't baptized for us. Like, there's no caveat. There's no correction. It's just, hey, they were all baptized. You're all baptized. I mean, Paul is very clearly for infant baptism. Otherwise, he would throw that corrective in right away. He doesn't. Yeah, so, okay. We have a, a beautiful type and foreshadowing of baptism. You know, it's just interesting because you've got these two stories before and they both have to do with eating and now this has to do with washing and the heart of what Christ is going to come and do is washing, holy baptism, and eating, Lord's Supper. And so you've, you find these things connected over and over in the scriptures. You just find them so frequently connected in the scriptures, you just start going, okay, this can't just be by chance. The, the Holy Spirit has to have done this. I know it's not a real convincing argument if you find yourself on the other side, but if you're already convinced of the truth of God's word in regard to the Lord's Supper and baptism and their centrality, um, then how can you help but read the rest of the scriptures in light of these things? Well, this has a little bit of a tragic end. Yeah, we don't often tell the, <laughs> the, the second chapter of this because it's just, yeah, it's got a tragic end. All right. Then he, uh, verse 15, and he here is Naaman. He returned to the man of God, namely Elisha, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Bingo. He's baptized and believes. Ah, he's baptized and believes. And that's exactly what Elisha intended. Let him come to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel, one connected to the true God. And sure enough, um, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He denounces all other gods. I mean, this is a, this is a saved sinner. Then he continues, so accept now a present from your servant. 
But Elisha, he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. Okay, now this is... Um, this is a fascinating, fascinating part before it goes downhill. Um, it's very positive. It's very good. It's also, it's also quite puzzling. Okay, let's get, the, let's get the easy stuff out of the way first. Um, this load of earth has to do with what I was talking about earlier, just the view of idolatry and the connection between the gods and the land. So if you look at the um, study note on verse 17, only recently converted to the God of Israel, Naaman thought that he needed to worship God on Israelite soil if his offerings were to be acceptable. See? So deeply connected with the land is the, is the God, that, that kind of idea. The notion prevailed in his day that the domain of a God was determined by national borders. For other instances of this view, see 1 Kings 20, which we've seen, 2 Kings 17, which we're going to see, and 1 Samuel 26, which we've already seen. Now, while we're down there, let's go ahead and look at um, the study note on 18 and 19. So you have this Hebrew word, salach, to forbear. As in response with patience, he realized the fellowship and worship issues that naturally arose for one who believed in and worshipped the one true God. He repeated this request for emphasis. Rimon was a Syrian storm god, uh, also known as Hadad. And so he's likely describing a function, when he's talking about leaning, like the king leaning on him, describing a function of his office by which he literally and symbolically supported the king. So, as to this phrase, I bow myself in the house of Rimon, has become proverbial to describe those who compromise their principles when under stress. But this is what's interesting. Elisha says to him, go in peace. And the study note here says, instead of upbraiding the new convert for visiting the house of Rimon, Elisha dismisses him in peace. However, of the Israelites fully taught by God, Elijah demanded that they stop limping between two different opinions, all the way back in 1 Kings 18. Jesus likewise required uncompromising commitment. So that's what's so strange about this, because we have an exception. We have an exception to the norm. Um, one place that commentators find an exception to the norm is, well, this is a pagan. Um, and so that kind of puts him in a different category. That's sort of one argument. The other argument is that it would be hypocritical for Elisha to demand um, 
that he go back and worship Yahweh on pain of inevitable death, certain death, when Israel and those who know God won't, and there's no death for them. So there's a kind of like, there's a kind of like moral bind there. Um, those are the two most common explanations for why the exception is granted. I don't know that I particularly buy either of them. It's just very, very surprising and interesting. I don't think that there necessarily has to be a rationale. In this case, God permitted it. In most cases, it's safe to say he doesn't. Um, but isn't there a difference? Because he, in a, the, Hold on, let's, can we grab you a microphone? Because I know people are going to be interested in, okay. in what you he, have to say. He's not a Jew, so he, because if you go back to the woman at the well, mm -hmm. she, she, uh, Jesus tells him that salvation comes through the Jews. He's from a culture, salvation didn't come to them, and he's going out there, and salvation, as we know, is by God's grace. Mm -hmm. So we look at that way, and then I've, you made the comment about the earth, and I say we kind of do that now. I mean... You get in some Christian stores, you get olive oil and, <laughs> and, and stuff like that, water from the Jordan River. So do we... I was thinking more like household deities are your NFL team or your college team. <laughs> Come in, yeah. yeah. And you have to like, wherever the team is, you have to take some of the turf, some of the memorabilia with you and have it in your house. Yeah, I do this too. I, my, t my team is the Golden Cavs, the, the Golden Buffaloes. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking um, you were seeing this all as a precursor or a kind of a baptismal foreshadowing. It's, it's interesting that the girl isn't given an age. And right. she's still val of value. Mm -hmm. Naaman is obviously a heathen in the in terms yeah. of the israel the god of the israels yeah. but he doesn't come to elisha and say um you know i'll accept now or he says my god he doesn't say that until after he's baptized right right so if you take the old testament from genesis forward yeah um it baptism is of value to any human life absolutely and it's almost like it goes back to the cups but oh. <laughs> <laughs> everything for me goes back to the cups <laughs> but um it, it it's almost like uh, people that believe abortion is all right there's no value in that life so if you say the only value of a life is when a person reaches accountability Mm -hmm. It is taking everything away from God because in these two cases he used someone who we don't even know her age. She could have been mm -hmm. really small. And Naaman wasn't even a person of faith. But he, in essence, is baptized and yeah. then he says, my God. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible thing because, of course, you see this here and you see many other references. I won't go through them all. Um, in Scripture of God, of God baptizing and making new, through, making new through water, yeah. and of course this is one that's very, very personal uh, toward Naaman, 
Um, there are more corporate kinds of baptisms. We mentioned passing through the Red Sea. That's St. Paul who calls it that. So, you know, take it up with him if you don't think that has anything to do with baptism. Uh, there's the flood, which St. Peter thinks has to do with baptism. That's why he brings it up in the third chapter of his first epistle. And then there's creation, where you have the water and the spirit hovering together. And I think, you know, a couple of our profs at um, the Fort Wayne Seminary have, have recently written some things, and, um, or at least made some presentations to this effect. I think it's really interesting. When you realize that baptism is God's means of begetting, he, he begets a, a world, he begets a, a new world through the flood. He begets Israel. He begets a, a child of God in Naaman. He begets us through the waters of... So when you, when you see that water is God's means of begetting, you track that all the way back, and then you, you look at what is... And we're, we're at a great advantage because we just had Holy Trinity Sunday. And do you remember the language there in the creed? Um, dates back to about the 6th century theologies earlier than that. The language of the creed is the Father is um, begotten, or no, 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 sorry. The Father begets the Son, um, and He Himself is neither begotten, is not begotten. The Son is begotten um, and does not beget, and uh, the Spirit is not begotten but proceeds. In other words, what's, what's the business with all this that the Father is one who begets. That's who the Father is. It's, it's essential to the concept of Father. If you can't beget, you're not a Father. And so what you, what you see if you sort of like take this whole string of begetting through water and bring it in is you just see that God is a baptismal God. He is a begetting God. That's who, that's who he at his essence is. So baptism, again, isn't this thing that's outside of God where God's like, yeah, I don't know, let's just do something with water and why not? You know, it's, it's essential to who he is, and it takes this form as a, as a self-expression of, of God the Father. So anyway, Naaman is wrapped up into this. He confesses that, you know, after the baptism, he confesses that, that God is true. And uh, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. Um, he's, granted, he's granted this exception. I, I, there's lots of different grounds where you could grant this exception on his being a... On his being a um, heathen on his, um, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, on, the, on account of his position, who knows, you could make all kinds of cases on account of the hypocrisy of Israel, uh, but anyway, I'm not even sure that any of that matters, it just is what it is, he's granted this exception, he goes in peace. Pastor? Yes, please. I, I have a, an old handwritten note in my hmm. Bible. It's probably wrong, but it says that Naaman was an Egyptian on loan to the Syrian army. Have you? Huh. I don't know that I've heard that. Okay. I, wonder, I wonder where they get it, because there's nothing explicit in the text. I wonder if they're getting that from the name. Well, the name in our commentary, I think it means beautiful or pleasant hmm. uh, in in Hebrew mm. is what it says, but so it has a Hebrew translation. But uh, hmm. I don't know. I it's an old note, so mm -hmm. uh, maybe I hadn't, I hadn't yeah. heard it before. Okay. Um, it, uh, that doesn't mean it's not true. I yeah, I just don't know what because the rationale. Because it could for that tie is. with the you know the the young girl as a slave mm. tied to an Egyptian. 
so forth. So, yeah, I hadn't thought about that aspect. You know, she she's enslaved to, and he's set free. I mean, you've got a bit of poetic license there to be sure, but um, but it is kind of a beautiful thought to just ponder on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this, this girl's definitely a Christological kind of figure. Yeah, as, as is the church, of course. So. Okay, well, things turn, uh, I mean, things are great so far. Now things, now things turn tragic. Darn it. All right, so um, in verse 19, Elisha says to Naaman, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared uh, this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So you've got this beautiful thing happening, and Gehazi's like, yeah, isn't this beautiful? Boy, it sure would be nice to have some of that stuff. <laughs> when Elisha says, no, we don't want anything, send it all back, that's too much for Gehazi. He's like, yeah, I can't let that pass. So he tracks, uh, he tracks Naaman down, or at least we're in the middle of that plan. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Verse 21, so Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Gehazi knows just which ones the two men want. <laughs> like that one? I mean, no, no, they'll like that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is a tragedy. He comes with this, up with this plausible story because that's not that Elisha suddenly becomes greedy, according to the fabricated story, but he needs to show hospitality. And so, hey, you can, don't give me a favor, but let's pass the favor on. I mean, it's a very plausible story. You could see why... Um, you know, Naaman would be taken up with it. All right, verse 23, And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Oh, oh, you just pause right there. You can feel that. And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is like God with Adam and Eve in the, in the garden, or like like parents with the young kids, just ask questions. Yeah, I went nowhere. Verse twenty six. But he said to him, "Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? 
Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Yeah. So this doing miracles for, for profit, for greedy gain, of course there's dishonesty involved. I think this is called simony. I'd have to look that up for sure. But it's, yeah, it's this idea of like performing the works of God. And, and you know, prophets of old had to be very careful of this. And pastors today have to be very careful of this. That you're, you're preaching the gospel and you're ministering free of charge, and a church supports you, but you have to make very sure that you're not engaging in your task like, hey, well, I'll go do this because it'll be lucrative, and hey, maybe if I do that funeral, there'll be an honorarium, and you know, this kind of like really grotesque thinking, but that's, you know, that's, that's in a much more crass fashion that's what Gehazi is guilty of. He's going to take advantage of this situation, this act of God, this work of God, and he's going to try to profit by it um, in great poetic justice. Um, he then bears the temporal uh, consequence of his sin in the form of, of Naaman's affliction. The leprosy effectively goes uh, from Naaman to him. Oh yes, yes. I can't recall. Was that in um, Was that in Judges? That sounds like Judges. Yeah, and he gets yeah. I mean, God has a way of. What's that? Oh. Oh no, it wasn't J L. No, I think we were, we were talking about the guy who's got the idols, and he ends up getting a. Yeah. You know, his whole household and everything yeah. is burned because they lose the battle and people die and they're, they're complaining. And God says, no, you took stuff that right. wasn't yours yeah. and he buried it in, in, underneath his tent and they had to go run, get yeah. it. And Hey, thanks for reminding me of another bummer. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's always a bummer when people, um, you know, don't do the right thing and then they, and that's, that's bummer A. And then you kind of, I mean, I don't know. You kind of feel bad. Maybe you shouldn't. I don't know that Gehazi's that sympathetic of a character, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, you just, as sinners, we don't like to see judgment fall on anyone necessarily. You know, it's, all right. Well, yeah, so that's, I think Gehazi pops back up somewhere. If you look, let's look at the study note on verse 27 together. Leprosy is not genetic, yeah, but is spread by persistent exposure to the sick. According to chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, Gehazi was not absolutely isolated from the people. However, his intercession for the widow of Shunem in chapter 8 may have taken place sometime before the healing of Naaman. Yeah, that's true. So part of the problem, uh, as with 1 Kings, so also 2 Kings, really, properly speaking, they're one document. If you get down to the nitty-gritty, 
it's almost impossible to make sense of the timeline and most commentators end up saying they're not chronologically written. So you don't know sometimes exactly when what event is occurring. He's just not interested. He's interested in telling a story with topics and themes for you to reflect on, not a straight linear history in the way of like, you know, we Western academia of of our time. Okay, moving on to the axe head recovered. Another fascinating story having to do with uh, water. You know, it is interesting. You have these, maybe it's a bit of an oversimplification, but you have these two episodes with food, now two episodes with water. You have the stew and the multiplication of the loaves. Now you have the washing of Naaman and the axe head recovered from the water. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Um, I mean, I don't know. My colloquial way of putting this is this, you know, there were too many students at the seminary. They had to build new dorms. Verse 2, Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he said, He answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. All right, well, we've got familiar ingredients. We've got water and then wood. We've also got, we've, we've got this recurring thing where the miracles are being done through means. Even if they're rather strange means, like the raising of the of the widow's son and like laying on top of him. You know, you can't just walk into the room and be like, hey, uh, rise, right? Um, y- nor with the soup can he just say, hey, poison stew, be unpoisoned. He's got to add in the flour. Um, here, too, there's means. He doesn't just say, axe head, arise. He throws in a stick. So it's very interesting. I think very generally you've got this theme that God likes to work miracles through means. And of course that fits a sacramental theology very well where you've got the means of water and the means of bread and wine. That's how God likes to act. Um, Then you also have here uh, water and wood, which as we mentioned just a few moments ago, water is everywhere, water in the spirit is everywhere, but so is water and wood. Um, Of course, what's the ark made of? Wood. And so you have water and wood. The church fathers point this out. So you've got water and wood. And when the the water at Meribah is, is bitter, or Mara, I mean, is bitter, yeah, it's uh, what do they do? What do they? What do you have to do? You have to throw in 
wood. He throws in a tree and the bitter waters are made. Um, when, the, when the people are thirsty and they want water from the rock, what do you hit it with? A wood stick. So water and wood is everywhere. Now you've got um, water that has swallowed up the axe head and what are you going to do? Throw in wood. So he throws him, uh, he cuts off a stick and throws it in there and the iron miraculously floats. So water and wood is everywhere. And of course that ties in so nicely with the theology of Romans 6, for example, um, that uh, we are through the water buried with Christ. We're united with him on his cross. We're buried with him. So the wood and the water save the cross and the water. All right. Um, There's lots of different ways you can go with this in terms of typology. There's obviously a resurrection motif going on in the water. There's an impossible made possible motif going on. Um, the water is uh, both a curse because it, it hides the axe head and it's also a blessing because it floats the axe head. And that's very much analogous to baptism, too, where it's got a killing component and a resurrecting component. Anyway, I won't go any, on any further, but it's a typologically rich section. The church fathers all teach this um, in regard to baptism, in regard to resurrection, and water and wood, those themes that I've brought up to you before. All right, anything to, uh, to add there? Any questions or thoughts you have? All right. I don't see anything. Okay. Well, sure. Well, why don't we entertain your comment? And then before we jump in, this is a rather lengthy section coming up where we're, we again see horses and chariots of fire, not uh, unlike how we did with Elijah. Um, so let's just let's entertain your your comment, and then we'll uh, we'll take a break for. Okay, I may be going weeks. far afield, but my mind goes to Christ walking on the water. So. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of interesting. Because you have, I mean, in that instance, the point of contact is you have two things floating on the water that shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Well, thank you all for being here. So, again, next week is Vacation Bible School, so we will not have uh, service or classes on Thursday. Uh, we'll meet then two weeks from today. The Lord be with you. Yeah, thank you all for being here.